Uncover from CBC Podcasts is your source for exceptional storytelling and groundbreaking journalism. Unveil the shocking secrets of one of Canada's most prolific fashion moguls. He far exceeds Jeffrey Epstein. He far exceeds Bill Cosby. And dive into the unsolved murders of two Canadian billionaires. This is a perfect storm of conspiracy theory. It's got all the ingredients, none of the answers. With new episodes released weekly, you'll hear the very best in award-winning true crime. Listen to Uncover wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Taiwan has found itself in the middle of a geopolitical storm over the last couple of weeks. For several days starting last week, the island saw China ramping up military drills in the areas surrounding it, flying warplanes across the boundary that separates the Taiwan Strait and launching missiles into Taiwanese waters. This all came after a visit to Taiwan from U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Our delegation came here to send an unequivocal message America stands with Taiwan. This was a highly controversial visit. A lot of experts warned that it was dangerous. Even the U.S. military had advised against it. China said Pelosi was playing with fire, that the visit seriously infringed on China's sovereignty and territorial integrity, and had warned that it wouldn't sit idly by if she went through with it. Beijing sees Taiwan as a breakaway province that will eventually be under its control. But Taiwan sees itself as distinct from the mainland. It's self-ruled, has its own constitution, and democratically elected leaders. Earlier this week, China did stop the military drills. But Beijing isn't backing down from its goal of unifying Taiwan with the rest of the country by 2050. No one should underestimate the Chinese people's resolve, determination, and ability to defend national sovereignty and territorial integrity. The historical task of complete reunification of the motherland must and surely will be fulfilled. On social media, people were predicting that Pelosi's visit would spark World War III. But interestingly, inside Taiwan, even as the rhetoric was escalating and there were military drills happening all around the island, most people seemed remarkably chill. There was even a big outdoor bubble bath party packed with tourists on an island in the Taiwan Strait, right near those drills. Today on the show, I want to explore that contrast. Why is it that when all people outside Taiwan seem to be talking about is a potential invasion, many people in Taiwan are remaining calm? My guest this week is William Young. He's the East Asia correspondent for Deutsche Welle. He's based in Taipei. And we're going to talk about what it's really like to live in a place that's caught between two superpowers. Plus, how did Taiwan come to be the disputed territory that we now know it as? And what does it mean to be Taiwanese today? I'm Tamara Kandaker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Hey, William, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. 
So you're in Taipei, and I want to start with how the last couple of weeks played out inside Taiwan. Because if you're someone who was following the coverage of Nancy Pelosi's visit and China's subsequent military drills from outside of Taiwan, the stakes looked very high. China is using its unprecedented military drills to prepare for a full-scale invasion of the self-governing island. And things have died down now. China's put an end to its military drills, but they've said that war preparations continue. And I wonder, what was the sense that you had in Taiwan over the last couple of weeks? What was the mood like on the ground there? What were people telling you? Let's just start with that. Yeah, so when the news about Pelosi uh, was first being reported by Western media outlets, uh, people here largely didn't really pay much attention to it because I think at that stage it was mostly circulating among the English-speaking community over here. But as the details of her actual trip to Asia and also more discussion about whether Taiwan is actually on the agenda, more people here started, I think, to pay more attention there were planned protests by small groups of, of protesters that are viewing her like visit as a way to really uh, make the relationship between China and Taiwan even worse. Most of the people actually were really excited about her visit. There were a lot of people lining up with signs saying, you know, welcome to Taiwan. Thank you for coming to Taiwan. Speaker Nancy Pelosi is the most senior U.S. official to visit Taiwan in a quarter of a century. With hundreds of supporters flocking to her hotel in Taipei. We're here to witness history. I'm very excited. She is like a hero. She courageously fought China's pressure. The tallest building here, which is called Taipei 101, also uh, displayed a message to her welcoming her. Taiwanese people in general, I think, has very like strong views and like hopes about the U.S. Uh, being Taiwan's biggest supporter. So whenever there are U.S. officials coming, like uh, Taiwanese people will always be very excited. I think overall during her time here, the mood was very jubilant. It was very celebratory. People are very excited. And then once she left and China announced that they're going to have a four-day military exercise the next day and revealing the proximity, which is really close to Taiwan and basically surrounding Taiwan, you know, people outside of Taiwan were very nervous about it and they were calling this like a crisis. The world's two most powerful nations find themselves in a hair-raising crisis that could spill into military conflict. And the strangest aspect of all this is how predictable it was. But at the same time, people here didn't really, you know, change much. They carry on with their own lives. And uh, the first day of the exercise also coincided with the Chinese uh, Valentine's Day. So couples still went on romantic dinners and they do romantic things. And uh, basically throughout the whole time during the exercise, it didn't really feel like the exercise added any nervous atmosphere to Taiwan over here. Right now in Taiwan, we don't have strong feelings. We're not feeling particularly nervous for the time being because for us, our lives still remain the same. People, when they're asked by media, they would explain that, you know, this is nothing really new for them. They've been living under the threat from China for many, many years. So this is for them just like a longer period of time that China is doing this at a 
an escalated, you know, level. This wasn't the first time an American official had visited Taiwan, nor was it the first time China had reacted to a visit like this with a show of force. But did the threat of an attack from China feel more real to you this time? Yeah, it definitely feels a lot more real, you know. Uh, but I think uh, because I work in the news industry, I've been covering this, so I compare the difference. They made a lot of unprecedented moves. They cross over the central line of the Taiwan Strait, which usually they would not fly their fighter jets as close as that. And uh, the missiles flew over Taiwan, four of them on the first day. I think that was also a very strong message to Taiwan that you know this is the consequences that you'll be paying if foreign politicians that are viewed as anti-China visited you. So, you know, but Taiwanese people here didn't really, you know, react the way that Beijing thought we would. Yeah. So why do you think there wasn't more panic among Taiwanese people? I think there is a combination of factors. One of the factors is that if China wanted to, you know, like increase their military threat against Taiwan, there's not much that Taiwan can do just because, you know, the size of the two countries are very different and the military power and military capabilities. For 64-year-old breakfast joint owner Lin Ji Shou, a recent flyby of a Chinese aircraft reminded him of the possibility of conflict in his own backyard. Even if they provoke us, we still can't touch them. If they want to fly over, just let them fly. If you shoot them down, everything will be over. I'm not kidding you. It would be the start of the Third World War. It's really too scary. And so they felt like it is not really in Taiwan's control in terms of whether China wants to uh, launch any kind of aggressive uh, campaign against Taiwan or not. So rather than letting it turn their life completely upside down, they'd rather stick to what they're used to do every day and focus on that rather than letting these very, I think, symbolic uh, military move to like uh, scare them or frustrate them or even like send them into panic. Is that true across the board? Were there factions of people who were more worried than others who were taking more preparations in the case of things like really escalating? Yeah, there are also, you know, like certain groups of Taiwanese people who think that this is really the start of something that is not going to be able to dial back, which means that this is new bottom line that Beijing will be doing in terms of their uh, threats against Taiwan. So there were talks of young children's parents trying to get these young children passports in case that they have to evacuate. Uh, they have a document with them. And also there were talks about, you know, starting to uh, do research about which country is the easiest in the case of a emergency or crisis if China ever actually either aimed their missiles at Taiwan or decided to invade Taiwan one day. So uh, there are discussions like that, but I think these are definitely the minorities in the society. The majority of the people, I think, are more like unless countries like the U.S. and the U.K. or Canada start to actually evacuate their own citizens from Taiwan or advise their citizens to leave Taiwan, then they would start to believe that the threat of a real military attack is much higher than before. I'm curious, what about the conversations that you've been having with your friends and family? Like, how has this played out in your life? 
I think most people in my life are kind of like just、uh, waiting to see the extent of China's response because they view this as an ongoing thing. A lot of them are also telling me how, even if they wanted to start finding a potential place to move to, they don't know where to go because you know they're Taiwanese and they don't think it's that easy that you know you can just pick it up and go to a certain country and you you'll just be accepted because of the very.、Uh, Unique、uh, position that Taiwan is in internationally, it's not recognized as a country by most of the countries around the world, and so most people decide that the best way for them is still to stay put and stay calm, focus on their everyday lives until there are very clear signs, like some of the indicators that I just mentioned, you know, like showing them very clearly that China is not joking. You have family members who work. In China, right, and I know they've been sort of following the situation from the Chinese perspective. What have they been telling you about the way that this is being portrayed in China, and how does it sort of contrast with what you're seeing at home? It is the complete opposite of how it's being portrayed here, obviously. And basically, most of the information that is dominating here in Taiwan are non-existent in China. Basically, because of the way that the Great Firewall has been censoring a lot of these sensitive content, and so for my family members in China, they think it's a very interesting contrast because they would use VPNs to bypass that Great Firewall to try to see what's the information on the outside world, and what they find is obviously a huge contrast and something that is completely different from how the whole military exercise is being depicted and the whole. Pelosi trip is also being depicted in a very, very different way. Pelosi is being portrayed as this selfish American politician who doesn't care about、uh, the lives of people in Taiwan, and also the frustration from China to try to fulfill her own personal legacy before she steps down. Now, China is blamed for being aggressive as he seeks reunification, blamed by the very country who. Aggressively sabotage the Chinese reunification in the first place. How hypocritical is that? Pelosi's trip happened a few months before midterm elections, where her Democrats are forecast to have a mere 17% chance to retain the House. The trip is seen by many as Pelosi's desperate attempt to rally domestic support. So that is how the Chinese.、Uh, media outlets or the Chinese government has been approaching this topic. So that makes me wonder: Is there a sense in Taiwan that the island is this pawn in the geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and China, and that this visit could have provoked China into a more severe reaction? I mean, there's certainly some communities that holds that view.、Uh, they think that you know Pelosi's visit is not really helping Taiwan to become safer, which、uh, I think it's aligned with some Western experts' prediction, but. There are also other Taiwanese people who believe that you know、uh, such a high-level U.S. politician coming to Taiwan is always going to help bring more spotlight on Taiwan, bring more global attention on Taiwan. For example, I think they probably would not think that you know a Canadian radio station would be interested in actually focusing on how Taiwanese people actually think about certain things or like or think about their own situation. But I think the A pawn situation definitely is also dominating another side of the argument that some people do believe in that, and they felt like、uh, the U.S. is just using Taiwan to achieve its own interest in Indo-Pacific, and 
they're not committed enough to you know be willing to actually show more public support. So there's also that kind of viewpoint as well. Grab your VIP pass. We're delving into the secretive world of Formula One. Behind the scenes with two of the sport's biggest names, Mercedes and Williams. This is not coal mining, this is Formula One motor racing. As they build their new cars. We want to be so much further ahead. We are in permanent racing mode. And face shocking headlines. Here's Lewis Hamilton moving away from Mercedes. I'm Joseph Fiennes and this is F1, back at base. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So actually, before we go any further, you've brought up a bunch of things that I think would be really useful to just clarify for listeners who may not really understand, you know, Taiwan's status or Taiwan's history at all. If you had to explain to someone who doesn't really know anything about the situation, could you give us the Coles notes of how we got here and how did Taiwan end up being this disputed territory? Yeah, sure. So the government here in Taiwan is the government of uh, the Republic of China, which used to control the entire China that we know now, before you know they were being uh, pushed uh, to Taiwan in a civil war during the uh, 1940s. The United States, while supporting the nationalists as the legitimate government, urges a compromise. There is to be no compromise. A race for territory begins. And then basically after that, uh, there have been two, you know, government on each side of the Taiwan Strait claiming that they're legitimate representative of China. In the 1970s, countries started to recognize the bigger China rather than the smaller China. And I think the pivot is really in 1979 when the United States decided to break ties with the Republic of China, which is now Taiwan and then become diplomatic partners with the People's Republic of China, which is in Beijing. As of January the 1st, 1979, the United States recognizes the government of the People's Republic of China as a sole legal government of China. Within this context, the people of the United States will maintain cultural, commercial, and other unofficial relations with the people of Taiwan. And ever since then, Taiwan's status has just been in limbo and without official recognition from one of the biggest countries like the U.S., a lot more countries are then starting to see the tide changing and switching over to China over the next few decades. And now China is using their huge economic leverage to really win over a lot more remaining diplomatic allies that Taiwan still have. China says that the Central American nation of Nicaragua has made the right choice after it cut ties with Taiwan in favor of Beijing. Now Taiwan is down to 14 diplomatic allies, including uh, the Vatican. Uh, And it's probably going to dwindle a lot more when China steps up its uh, pressure campaigns against these individual countries, mostly in either the Pacific or Latin America, where foreign aid is such an important thing for countries, governments to decide which country they wanted to have diplomatic ties with. So that's probably going to continue the trend. And so you said the pivot really happened in 1979 when the U.S. 
recognize the People's Republic of China. But what is the nature of the U.S.'s relationship with Taiwan right now? It's a very unofficial relationship, but at the same time, it's a very solid relationship. There are、uh, laws inside the U.S. requiring the U.S. government providing Taiwan、uh, assistance in, you know,、uh, establishing its army and military's capability and ensure that it has the、uh, ability to defend itself. And、uh, the U.S. has what many countries, I think, including Canada, called the One China policy, which is very different from. What the Chinese government claim as the One China principle, the One China policy is that they do recognize that there is only one China, but they also do not officially recognize that China has the full autonomy over Taiwan. But China's One China principle is that there is only one China, and Taiwan is a part of China. So if this wasn't confusing enough, in recent months the U.S.'s policy on Taiwan's become even less clear. When reporters have asked Joe Biden if he'd defend Taiwan militarily, he's repeatedly said yes. Commitments Beijing interprets as violations of long-standing pledges made to China. You didn't want to get involved in the Ukraine conflict militarily for obvious reasons. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. If we could zoom out a little bit from this moment in time, China says Taiwan is a breakaway province of China, and they've just recommitted to this idea of unification. They said that they're willing to use force if necessary if they can't gain control of the island peacefully. This is part of Xi Jinping's whole concept of the rejuvenation of China by 2050. How much consensus is there in Taiwan on the issue of unification with China? Now the latest poll probably polls at less than five to ten percent, just because more than ninety percent of people now identify themselves as Taiwanese, and I think that comes with the very different way of life, very different system of governance, and a very different. Uh, upbringing for people in Taiwan versus people who had experience going to schools in China. The more that they see the way that China has been doing the oppressions to its own citizens in Hong Kong, inside China, and then the pressures on Taiwan, these are all proof that convince a lot more people that becoming part of China is not never actually going to be as good as the dreams or the image that the Chinese government is trying to present to them. And the offer that has been on the table for context is this idea of one country, two systems, similar to the arrangement that China has had with Hong Kong, right? Right. Both Hong Kong and Macau, and you know, after 2019, the huge protest over there, it basically convinced a lot more people that it's just、uh, naive for Taiwan to think that China will live up to its words in the so-called one country, two systems vision that. Presented to the Taiwanese people, and Taiwan has rejected the one country, two systems model, which was proposed by Beijing in a white paper that was published this week. The foreign ministry in Taipei said only the people of Taiwan can decide the island's future. And so, according to some of the most recent polling that I've read, there is a very small fraction of people who. Wants unification as soon as possible. Then there's like a very tiny. I think it's around five percent of people who want independence as soon as possible. But the vast majority of people want to see the status quo, right? And why is that? Why do most people want things to stay the way that they are? 
I think they're realistic about the situation that Taiwan is in. They know that it's impossible for suddenly dozens of countries、uh, turning around and say they're also going to recognize Taiwan as a country. So they don't think pursuing independence is a smart way of, you know, going down that path. But at the same time, a lot of these factors already. Dissuade a lot of people to even consider like possibility of unifying with China. So obviously, they think that maintaining the status quo, the way of life, is the best way for them to actually still be able to enjoy all the rights and freedom that they are entitled to. So you said young people really see themselves as Taiwanese, but usually I think there's a generational divide on things like this. So is that true in this case? Do older people see things? Differently, maybe. Yeah, because they grew up in a very different Taiwan. A lot of them probably now age fifty-five、uh, or older grew up in a Taiwan that is still under martial law. For them, it's not necessarily the end of the world if Taiwan has to ever actually return to that kind of style. But obviously, anyone that is in their early forties or thirties and twenties, they grew up in a Taiwan that is already a democratic country that has democratic elections. Even though both Taiwan and China do speak Mandarin, there are a lot of shared food or cultural practices. But I think just the value system alone can be separating the two places in a very wide way in terms of its ideology and、uh, way of life. And so, it's going to also be very hard for them to actually consider, you know, imagine going back to when they don't have these rights. So now that things are calmer, but China's recommitted to this idea of unification, made it clear that they're not ruling out the use of force. Where do you see all of this going? I think it's really hard to say, but definitely, I think、uh, Beijing is serious about its、uh, intention to actually keep up the military pressure, and、uh, a lot of the experts are already predicting that there's going to be a new status quo across the Taiwan Strait now that they have. Done a lot of unprecedented stuff over the last week, and they felt like with the U.S. being distracted、uh, domestically, there is a big question mark in terms of how much pushback or containment can the Democratic Alliance continue to achieve、uh, in this regard. And plus,、uh, China has a lot of different ways to actually persuade or influence other countries that might traditionally be considered as an ally of the U.S. or the Democratic Alliance. So. I think、uh, as long as China is still economically very strong, and they continue to modernize their military, the gap between the U.S. and China is just only going to continue to shrink. And if that's the case, I think there is probably very little that Taiwan can do to really determine its own fate. Rather, it really needs to just go with the flow in a way that find the best way to survive, and in a way that. Find the best way to maintain the way of life as best as they can. I think it's already reflected through this time. You know, Taiwanese people are not really trying to push back too much.、Uh, what they are trying to do is to hold on to what they already have. William, thank you so much. Thank you.
All right, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. This is actually our last new episode for a little while. We're going on a short hiatus, but don't worry, we'll be back in September. And in the meantime, we're going to be working on some cool stuff for you. And we'll be republishing some of our favorite past episodes that you may have missed. So keep an eye on this feed for that. And reach out if you have any ideas for stories that you want to hear on this show. Or if you just want to say hello, I'm on Twitter at Anima underscore TK. Our producer is Ashley Mack. Our sound designer is Yvette Sin. And our showrunner is Joyta Shangupta. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Willow Smith is our senior producer and Nick McCabe-Locos is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. If you like this episode, take a second to rate and review us wherever you're listening. It really helps new listeners find the show. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening. And I will talk to you back here in a little while. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.